I have the privilege tonight of reading scripture. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Father, thank you for your word. We, we just value it so much, and may you speak through it to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new to regeneration, we just go through the Bible um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so this is where we're at because some of you may be wondering, like, why is he focusing an entire study about Joseph of Arimathea? And blah, blah, blah. It's because this is where we're at. So this is where we're at. So this is what we're studying. Tonight we're going to look at the burial of Jesus in this section of Scripture. That's what we're looking at. And then it's just one more chapter until we finish the Gospel of Luke. And some of you may be like, oh, finally. Because I think it, we're going on three and a half years yeah, one more chapter, but too bad for you. It's 53 verses, which takes me about two months. So sorry, this is, what, this, is, this is how it is. So something to keep in mind about the burial of Jesus is that there were no plans for his burial. No plans at all. Right? His disciples, his family, they did not plan on burying Jesus. There were no plans for this. Now, besides, the disciples weren't around to claim that body, right? They all took off. If anything, they were looking at a distance. If anything, John was there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that was probably it. Nor did any of them have the means to take care of Jesus' physical body. Actually, burial wasn't part of the process for someone who was crucified. Typically, someone who was crucified was a criminal, And would be treated as such. And so criminals weren't given the decency or the honor of having a burial. Crucifixion's intent was to slowly and painfully rob you of your life. But that wasn't all it was meant to do. Another thing it was meant to do is to rob you of your dignity. So there you would be hanging naked, which was meant to humiliate you, which was meant to shame you. And they would strip you of everything physical, but they would also look to strip you of anything that is intangible. So things such as influence, things such as power, they are looking to strip that from you. Because if you had any followers, if you had any people that believed in your cause and you were leading a movement, they were there to say, we're Rome and we're in charge, look at your leader now. And they would strip you of everything you had. So part of this humiliation, part of this shame, stripping of power, stripping of influence, was not allowing for the crucified person to have a proper burial. And the release of a body for burial was totally dependent on the judge, the magistrate. So if he felt like it, he can release the body. But if not, the body would just be left to hang there, decaying, rotting. On that crucifix, just like most other bodies there. Most of the bodies there were just decomposing. Eventually, wild animals would come. Dogs would come. Vultures would come. Scavengers, insects, they would just eat away at the body. So unless someone approached the magistrate for that body, it would be just left on the crucifix to rot. 
Would Pilate listen to any of Jesus' family members to release the body? Probably not. I mean, they, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any influence. There was no reason why Pilate would release the body to them. Would he release it to any of the disciples? Probably not. They wouldn't even ask for it. They're so scared to be even associated with Jesus. They're off. They don't even think about this stuff. Now, where did Jesus die? According to Mark chapter 15, verse 22, he died in a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, and it's not a pleasant place. Some of the scholars believe that it's this place in Jerusalem outside the city gates with the silhouette of a skull. And if you go there today, they have a tourist site of the resurrection tomb right next to it, and right below the silhouette is a bus station. And they believe that that's the hill. Now, other scholars believe it's called the place of the skull, and they're not so sure that's the place, but maybe it is. But wherever this place of the skull is, is called that because these rotting bodies would be sitting on these crucifixes, and sooner or later the skulls would fall off the spine. And so it would be a place of skulls. It's skulls all over. So therefore, place of skull. Now, most of the people who died on Golgotha were not given a proper burial. Their skulls just left on the mountain. And so that is the place where Jesus died, and his followers and his family probably thought he was going to rot there, just like all those that were rotting there before him who were crucified. Now, isn't this just an incredibly sad thing to think about? Because you think about the multitudes that Jesus fed, the multitude that he healed, the multitude that he ministered to and taught and he loved, and so many people that he touched their lives, and no one is going to step up to honor him with a proper burial. No one, except one. Someone came through, right? And it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, actually. It reads this. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, who was the rich that Isaiah prophesied about? Verse 50, Luke chapter 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Arimathea is a town in Judea. It's a Jewish town. And and Joseph came through when no one else did. And up until this time, Joseph's following of of Jesus was actually just hidden. It, It was done in secret. But after Jesus' death, he could no longer keep his allegiance to Jesus secret. He had to come out. Now, who was Joseph of Arimathea? Now, we know from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, that he was a rich man. There's also this background given to us in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now, from Luke's account... We know he was a member of the council, which is called the Sanhedrin. And according to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, verse 43, he wasn't just any member of the council. He was a respected member of the council. Luke also recorded for us that he was a good and righteous man. Now in John's gospel, John chapter 19, verse 38, we are informed that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So we have a little bit of these glimpses of who Joseph of Arimathea was in all gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give us this information, and if you put them all together, you get this picture of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 51. Who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So 
Here's this prominent and respected member of the council who did not consent of the council's decision and action to kill Jesus. Now, something to keep in mind here. In order for the council, what we call the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, to pursue a death sentence, it required a unanimous consent. That's what it required. This is their law. They could not sentence anyone to death. Now, back in these Roman times, they can't sentence anyone to death anyway. Rome had the power. Only Rome could sentence someone to death. What they could do, though, was propose an idea to issue a death sentence to someone. And this needed unanimous consent as well before they could present this to the Roman officials. So, do you see another way that this council, this Sanhedrin, violated their own law and they practiced injustice in Jesus' trial because we're told that Joseph did not consent. So either Joseph wasn't there, or he was there and they voted and they didn't count it. They're just like, ah, never mind, whatever. Or maybe Joseph just raised it like this. I, I don't know, whatever he did. But either way, they didn't follow their own laws. They were supposed to have a unanimous consent. Lastly, we're told that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. In verse 51, in terms of a description for Joseph. Mark also recorded that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. So this was someone who understood Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God. And so these are the things we know about Joseph of Arimathea. And we know that something changed in him at Jesus' death, or after Jesus' death. Verse 52, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The secret is out. The secret disciple no longer. Mark recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, that Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body. So Pilate is this judge. Pilate was the judge who could release Jesus' corpse from the crucifix. And this had to take guts for Joseph to do this. This took a lot of courage for him to move from from fear to courage. Because for years, fear prevented him from living openly as a disciple of Jesus. And fear controlled him. And what sets him free? It's the cross. He saw the cross. He, He saw what it all meant. The miracles, the life, and the teachings of Jesus, those things drew him into Jesus, and they drew him to believe in Jesus. But the fear of coming out paralyzed him to live openly with his faith in Jesus. And he hid who he really was because of fear. And here he was, hanging out as a respected member of the Sanhedrin. But none of them knew that he was a follower of Jesus. This guy's just living a secret life. Because the fear didn't allow him to be who he really was. Now maybe some of you can relate to this. That perhaps some of you are living this secret life of who you really are. And who you present yourself to be at work. Or at school. Or in your social circles. Or when you're with your family. You believe in Jesus, but you let fear kind of tie you down in your professional or social circles because you don't know what will happen to you if you let that out. And maybe you fear letting some of your friends know because you fear that might change your relationship. Or maybe you fear letting some of your family know even though they're some of the closest people to your life. But then the cross changed him. The cross also changed the centurion. You remember back in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, last week's text? So the cross is extremely powerful. It changes lives. And and I'm so glad that we're starting this new year here 
talking about the cross and moving into the resurrection and moving into the ascension of Jesus. And so the cross moves people from fear to courage. It moves people from disbelief to belief. And it moved Joseph to ask for Jesus' body when no one else did. Now I wonder what Pilate said when Joseph came and asked for the body. Because he must have been like, why? I know you're part of the Sanhedrin, and I know you have to have a unanimous consent to do this, so you must have said yes. And now you want the body? This is odd. And I wonder if Pilate did indeed ask Joseph why. I wonder how he replied. I wonder if he confessed that he was a coward and he was following Jesus for years, but he just couldn't stand up for his faith. Or if he had the opportunity to share the gospel, if he did that. And it's all conjecture. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing that stuff out there. But we do know that Joseph asked for Jesus' body and that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. Pilate wanted to get this confirmed by the centurion himself. So looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 44 and 45, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, Pilate was really surprised that Jesus was already dead from crucifixion because it was only a few hours when crucifixion is meant to be a long, painful death. It's not just a few hours. It's supposed to last for many hours. It's supposed to last for days. So when he learns of Jesus' death, he granted Jesus' corpse to Joseph. And what happened to Jesus' body from this point on, you have to keep in mind, happened really quickly. Really quickly. And why is that? Because Sabbath is at 6 p.m. Sabbath is coming. We know that it was dark from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. So if anything, this is after 3 p.m. How much after, we don't know. But we know it's after. So not only is Sabbath right around the corner, but this is also Passover weekend. This is crazy time in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is inflated with people. So Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. Joseph gets the body sometime after 3 p.m. It's not a lot of time to prepare for a burial. Right? He had less than three hours to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, have any of you ever planned a funeral? It takes more than three hours. It does. Now, think about planning a funeral without modern technology. No cell phone. There's no internet for you to look up Yelp reviews on which burial places have the best stars or whatever. I mean, there's nothing there, right? Everything is done on foot. And it's during the busiest time in the city, Passover weekend, less than three hours away from the Sabbath when everything shuts down. And so this is like last-minute Christmas shopping. How in the world are they going to pull this off? Less than three hours. And the way they pull this off is because it's Joseph of stinking Arimathea. Right? Like, we'll get to this after... Verse 53. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And we'll talk about that too. But Mark wrote in Mark chapter 15, verse 46, that Joseph bought a linen shroud. 
Now we know that Joseph was a rich man and he was a well-respected member of the council. And rich and respected men, what do they have? They have money. They have connections. And back in this day, they had servants. And so Joseph didn't do this alone. He couldn't because part of the burial process was to clean the body prior to the burial. Jewish law required that the body be washed prior to embalming. So you think about this. Jesus was severely beaten. A crown of thorns was placed on His head. Nails were driven into His arms and into His feet. He is stabbed by a spear to make sure that He was dead. Blood is everywhere. It's all over His hair. It's in every crack in His skin. It's under His fingernails. It is everywhere. So cleaning Jesus' body, this is not easy task this is not just like oh there's just a little blemish there this is going to take a long time and one of those who helped prepare the body of jesus for burial we know his name was nicodemus we'll get to him a little later too but to give you a little quick intro he's found in john chapter 19 verse 39 nicodemus also who earlier had come to jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight and so just to give you that Quick detail there, 75 pounds of mixture of myrrh and aloes. It's a lot of Vaseline type stuff, right? There's a lot of stuff. Verse 54, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So Joseph went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. He had some guys helping him. They go to Golgotha. They take Jesus' body down from the cross. They travel to the burial site carrying Jesus. They traveled to all these different shops for all these different burial supplies. They went to their homes and they went to other shops to get the cleaning supplies to embalm the body of Jesus. They cleaned the corpse. They wrapped Jesus' body with a linen shroud along with 75 pounds of spices and ointments. They put Jesus' body in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. Less than three hours. Now, how many of us can even go to Costco in less than three hours? Right? I mean, this is crazy. And they do all this stuff without any modern technology. Right? And there's no hearse to carry the body. They are carrying the body, or maybe in a wheelbarrow or something, but it's not a car. And so you keep in mind that this is right before Passover. So you imagine Costco right before Christmas. It's a nightmare. People everywhere, last-minute shopping. They're getting their last-minute preparations, all this stuff. So you imagine the lines in Passover, trying to get supplies and all this stuff. And it's not just before Passover. It's the Sabbath. So there's no more shopping after this. They have to get everything done here. So you talk about these insane crowds. No way for Joseph to do this alone. But this was Joseph of stinking Arimathea and a rich and well-respected man of the council with a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of connections. So he tells these servants, you're going to clean the body and you guys are going to get the linen shroud and you guys are going to get that burial site ready for us to get there and you get the body there and you guys are going to do the embalming and if anyone gives you a hard time, you tell them that I sent you. And so they're off. Go! And they're all going into the stuff and they're going to these stores and they're grabbing all these things and people are like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you cutting the line? Why are you taking my stuff? Hey, I ordered that first. You know, Joseph of Arimathea sent me and he needs this stuff. And these are pilgrims from all over the place, right? 
They don't know who Joseph of Arimathea is. Like, oh, who's Joseph? I don't know who he is. Get back in line. I ordered that first. And they're like, you might not know Joseph of Arimathea, but that shop owner knows Joseph of Arimathea. If you have a problem, go talk with him. See ya. And he's out. And so everyone knows Joseph of Arimathea. This is a respected member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And Joseph had help. So we don't know any of these servants' names, but we have one guy's name. His name is Nicodemus. Now, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. And this is the same Nicodemus that John wrote about in John chapter 3 and John chapter 7. And John made sure that we didn't get confused at which Nicodemus this was. Because in John chapter 19 verse 39 he said, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night. It's this Nicodemus. The John chapter 3, the John chapter 7 Nicodemus. It's this one. No other one. I want to make sure that you guys know this. So John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, John records, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and so now John is fast-forwarding and saying, look back, that same Nicodemus. Now you notice what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had in common. Their faith, their belief in Jesus, that it was a secret, that it was hidden. And Nicodemus and Joseph, they knew one another. I don't know how they knew one another. Maybe it was like a sparkle in each other's eye, like the Jesus sparkle or something. They're like, you know, I don't, I don't know what they did. I don't know how they, maybe they're like, they just touched. Like, ooh, ooh, are you? I don't know. I don't know what they did. But no one else knew, right? No one else knew in the council. And why is that? Fear. These guys are scared. These guys are very influential. They are very well off. They're scared to lose that influence. They're scared to lose that power. They're scared to lose that wealth. And you can understand why. Right? These guys hate Jesus. Can you imagine if someone stood, I like Jesus. You know, they're like, shut up, be quiet. So these guys found each other and they bonded. Like, are you? I am. You? Okay. Um, let's talk. And so can you imagine these fascinating conversations that these guys must have had with one another about theology and philosophy and the law because Jesus kind of just shed a new thing. that I have never seen it like this before. That This is incredible. Go ask him some questions. I got to go at night though because I don't want anyone to know. I understand, but you, you, we need to ask him this stuff. This is crazy. And so this is the relationship. And they saw how Jesus was challenging them and changing their lives because of the way that they were reading the scriptures it's not the same anymore and they bonded because of jesus but they bonded secretly it was all kind of hidden and they didn't have the courage to stand up for their faith in jesus until they were confronted with the cross they were in hiding all that time. Nicodemus asked Jesus some awesome questions, some really good questions back in John chapter 3, under the cover of night. And it's not until John chapter 19 that he has the courage to act on his faith. And the cross brought that out of him. And all that he knew as a scholar, all that he knew as a student of the Scriptures, all of that stuff made sense to him when he saw the cross. And it's the cross that also changed Joseph. 
You notice that Joseph is connected to the linen shroud while Nicodemus is connected to the spices and the ointments. And so there's this division of responsibilities here. Joseph and his guys take care of these things. Nicodemus and his guys take care of these things. And we're going to get together at the burial site and we're going to take care of burying Jesus. Verses 55 and 56. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared the spices and ointments on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Now, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark also mention these women. They actually give us their names. Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. Mark chapter 15, verse 47, and Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go anoint him. These were the same women that Luke wrote about here in Luke chapter 23, verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So these women saw Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and their servants do their thing. They saw Joseph bring the linen shroud. They saw Nicodemus bring the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and and how their servants prepared Jesus for burial, all this kind of stuff. Verse 55, Luke recorded this, that the women followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And this is hilarious. Verse 56, I don't know if you catch this. Listen to this. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Is that funny? How come only women have smiles on their faces? What is this? Because they saw all that these guys did, right? They, they see everything. They followed. They saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments after Jesus' body had already been embalmed with this linen shroud and 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Do you get what's happening here? See, these women were like this. Oh, you done Jesus wrong, son. Like, that's not right. And they were kind enough not to bring it up before the guys. You know, they, they must have been there with the other women. They're like, amateurs. These guys are amateurs. And so these women knew we're coming back. Like, this. Oy vey. Like, this is, this is messed up. And, and you know how guys can be, right? We know. We can be so proud of what we've done just to have our moms or our grandmothers or our aunties or our sisters or our girlfriends or whatever. They just come in and with this face and like, ooh, uh-uh. Like, no. Like, and I did this a few months ago. I took my four-year-old to her uh, friend's birthday party. Didn't buy a gift yet. It was a last-minute thing. My wife, hey, can you take uh, Sienna out to her friend's birthday party? And I didn't buy a gift yet, so can you go get a gift? Uh, Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, no problem. So I go to a toy store. Go to a local toy store that we live close by, and here I am, and I pick a toy, and I, I think, hey, I'm doing a great job. This is a great gift. Look at this gift. And so I go pay for it. I go up there and I ask the guy, hey, do you have a gift bag or something that I could put this gift in? Because I can't just give the gift like this. And he was like, we're out of gift bags. There's, there's no more. We sold out. Like, we don't have any more. And he was like, I just have this brown bag, brown paper bag. And I was like, all right, I'll take the brown paper bag. And I took the brown paper bag and I take it. 
Right? And I start walking, and I was like, hey, isn't this a great gift, honey? And like, oh, yeah, this is a great gift, and all this stuff. And so we get to the house and bring this thing, open the door, and this pile of gifts, beautifully wrapped, like nice ribbons on there, and, and, and bows, and little cards, like pretty cards, and, and gift bags, nice ones, tissue paper with glitter, and there's all this stuff, and my brown paper bag. Now, I'm, I'm the only dad there. There were other dads there, but they were there with their wives, right? But I'm the only dad there by himself. And, I, and I'm sure my wife would have done something to make the gift look presentable. Such as, here's a cashier, and across the way is a gift wrapping place where you can pay for the gift wrapping, but I'm just too cheap to pay for gift wrapping. The gift wrapping is more expensive than the gift. I mean, I'm not going to do that, right? I'm cool with the brown paper bag. My wife would never let me get away with that. We're wrapping that gift. Like this is with a brown paper bag. No, don't do that. Or she would have thought of something creative to make it presentable. And you guys, you know, you do the same thing as I did. Brown paper bag. Like, hey, it's a gift, right? So I'd be like, hey, happy birthday, little girl. And she'd like, is this from Trader Joe's? No, <laughs> no, not from Trader Joe's. You see Trader Joe's on the thing? It's just brown. That's it. So that's what's happening to these women. These women are looking at Jesus being wrapped in a brown paper bag. What? This is Messiah. This is Jesus. What, what is this? And these guys are just like, ah, man, look at that. We're awesome. Carry the body here. Got all this stuff. Little trout, all this. Man, we're awesome. Man, we're, look, at, look at us. And they're doing what they can. And these women look at each other and like, it's really sweet, but it's a really bad job. It's really terrible. We, we have to come back. And as sad as Jesus' death was, I wonder if these women just shared a really good laugh about how Nicodemus and Joseph did this rap job. Right? Like, can you believe these guys? You can't even tell, like, where's the head and where's the feet. You can't tell. He just looks like a Cocoon. Like, what is this? These guys, nothing, right? Again, all conjecture. But back to a more serious note. Did you know that Jesus had no prejudice against people? It is sin that separates us from God, and he's very serious about sin in our lives and how that needs to be repented of. But in terms of people, there's no prejudice in Jesus towards people. We see him minister to the poor just as he is ministering to the rich, don't we? Those nights that Nicodemus and perhaps Joseph of Arimathea also, he was ministering to them, he was talking to them. And in the Gospel of Luke, it is obvious that Jesus loved the poor, he loved the least, he loved the marginalized, he loved the ostracized, he loved the unloved. But let's not ignore that he also loved those that don't fit into that categorization, because sometimes we do. Especially in a place like ours, because we're in Oakland. And you wouldn't be in this church if you thought that, oh yes, the rich is the way to go. You would be like in Atherton, or something like that. You wouldn't be in Oakland. And so I just want us to be careful not to say, oh, the rich. Because Jesus loved them too. 
And there is no debate that the vast majority of those who came to faith were the least, the poor, and the marginalized, right? I mean, if you don't believe me, it's simple. Just make a list, divide it in half, put all the rich people and all the powerful and influential people here, and put the rest over here. And you're going to see for yourself that it's not even a comparison. There's no argument there. But let's not forget that there were the rich and the influential and the powerful people who came to faith as well. And it's not nearly as much as those who are perceived as to be less than, but there are the stories of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Paul. And the gospel is not a respecter of people. The rich are in need of the gospel just as much as the poor are. And it's the sin that separates us from God. Another observation from this text is, and this might be a little bit more challenging, is that God's timing is perfect. Nicodemus wasn't ready to stand for Jesus back in John chapter 3 or in John chapter 7. Joseph wasn't ready to take a stand for Jesus until the end of Luke chapter 23. And God knew all of this. And they came through at God's appointed time. Because no one else came to claim Jesus' body. Now God's word is true. His prophecies are true. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 happened. And our fear and our embarrassment and our shame that we have in Jesus, the Bible of being followers of Jesus that that cause us to hide, that cause us to cover up and live different lives in different settings, God doesn't condemn you for that. God doesn't judge you for that. You are His child. He loves you. And you will rise up at the right time that He has appointed for you. You will. You will. Because can you imagine... If Joseph and Nicodemus operated outside of God's timing. Because maybe they wouldn't be able to prepare for Jesus' burial under three hours. Ever think about this? Because they'd be shopping for all these supplies right before Sabbath in the marketplace. And it's right before Passover. And this is an impossible thing to get all this stuff. And if they came to faith earlier and stood up for Jesus and did what they want, you think those shop owners would have bent over backwards to oh, I'll take the linen shroud? Oh, 75 pounds of myrrh? Yeah, take it. Whatever you need, whatever you need, take it, take it. You think that somebody blackballed by the Sanhedrin as a traitor would be able to pull that stuff off? Not a chance. They'd be like, get out of here. You're not even Jewish anymore. Get out of here. Your guy, he's hanging on the cross. Get out of here. You, you have no place in my shop. You, you used to be a well-respected man, and you used to have a... But not anymore. Get out of here. Actually, if I do it, I'm going to get in trouble with the Sanhedrin. They told me not to serve you anymore. So can you imagine if God's timing is not perfect? How would he be buried? How would they be able to carry this through? And maybe Pilate, when Joseph came to claim the body, he wouldn't even have released the body. Because he would have been, if I release the body, what? Like, who are you anymore? You have no power. What are you going to do for me? You used to have power. You used to be able to speak into the Sanhedrin. You were a well-respected man. But now you have no power. So why would I? Get out of here. So where would that leave the story of the resurrection? And so we often don't know what God is doing in His timing, but He absolutely knows. And so sometimes we wonder about His timing, and we wonder about certain people, and we wonder like, man, when are they going to get it? When are they going to do it? They're going to get it when God purposes it, when they are needed. Even when we judge people like, man, that guy's a loser. 
That guy can't do anything. He calls himself a believer, but he's not doing anything. Like, what a loser. You watch out. He's going to rise up at a time, and he's going to claim Jesus' body when no one else did. He's going to step up. Because do you ever see God get frustrated at himself? Man, I should have done it earlier. Like, ah, like he doesn't do that, right? He, and, and he's extremely patient. You ever like, oh, that guy's so frustrating. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bite my nails off. He's so frustrating. Like, you, know, you, you never hear about this about God, right? You never hear about Jesus being hurried, do you? It, anywhere in the Bible, do you ever see him run? Never. Never walks on water, but he doesn't run. He's not in a hurry. He has everything under control. What does he have to run for? He says he has everything under control. So even in our fearfulness, even in our secretiveness, even in our foolishness, even in our incompetence, God is far greater than all of our weaknesses to fulfill His purposes in our lives at the right time. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So don't beat yourself up. Don't get frustrated at yourself. You're going to come through. You just keep on keeping on. Right? Keep on looking at it. Keep on following. Keep on. You're, you're going to come through. Joseph and Nicodemus were silent. They lived in secrecy for a long time because they were fearful. But you see how they show up big time to fulfill the purpose of God the day that Jesus was put in the tomb. Now speaking of tombs. The tombs of the very rich or the rich are very different than the poor because the tombs of the poor, they would be reused. So someone would be buried in there and after a year they would pull them out and whatever was left uh, after the decomposition and whatever, they, it would, they would burn it. And then they would clean out the tomb and then another body would be put in there. And they would do this over and over multiple times. Not so with the rich. The rich, they were buried in there once and then they were left in peace, never to be touched again. Why is this important? Isaiah 53, 9. Jesus was placed in a rich man's tomb. He was buried with the rich. It's a proof of prophecy. He didn't have a tomb for himself. Jesus didn't prepare like that. God prepared all of it. I mean, it was done like thousands of years earlier. And he really didn't have much of a chance to have a burial, let alone a burial itself, because only Joseph claimed the body. And so here Joseph prepared such a place with Jesus with his riches and his resources and his influence. So to be rich is not all that bad. Right? Let's not judge, oh, he's rich. Eh, you're not a Christian. You're a terrible Christian. Well, who buried Jesus? And something to keep in mind is that not all of us have the same spiritual journey and not all of us have the same cadence. Right? For some, it takes longer to come to a place of discipleship to Jesus. Some take longer to develop courage and boldness to share the gospel and live a life consistent to what he believes. So I encourage those of us who push spirituality to stop pushing because not everyone moves at your speed. So stop pushing people. Some people need more time. Right? And some need a clearer picture of the cross before change happens. 
Just like Joseph, just like the centurion, just like Nicodemus, and they saw the cross, and then change happens. And that being said, this is my pushiness coming out now. You can't live in the dark forever. You can't live in the darkness forever. And this is biblical too. You can't live in secrecy forever. There will be a time where you need to take a stand when you will be confronted to make a choice for God or against God. And we see that in the life of Joseph of Arimathea. And we see that in the life of Pilate. Both of these guys were confronted with choices to make for or against God. Both of them procrastinated as long as they could to make a decision for Jesus. For example, Pilate. He gets Jesus in his court, and instead of dealing with the injustice, he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back, and instead of just dealing with it, he kind of tries to massage the Jewish folks there in power, and then he folds under the fear of their rebellion, because if they rebel, man, Rome is going to get on me, that I'm unable to keep order. And so Joseph of Arimathea is the same way in procrastination. He held off his discipleship to Jesus out of fear as well. And he held out until Jesus died. And he didn't even get to fully practice what he believed until after Jesus died, after he was confronted with the cross. Pilate had several opportunities to stand for God. And in Matthew 27, verse 22, Pilate addressed the mob, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And he could have taken a stand then. He could have taken a stand after Jesus' death, and he could have repented when Joseph came to ask for Jesus' body, but he didn't. He just said, hey, here's the body. He could have said, like, what? He's dead? And Joseph's sharing the gospel with him, and nothing happens? Who knows? But this question, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, is for all of us, isn't it? Because we all need to address this question. You either address it when you're physically alive or when you die and you're before the throne of God. Either way, the question needs to be addressed and your life after physical death is dependent on the answer to this question. And maybe today or tonight is is, is the night for you to address this question to make a choice for Jesus. Because maybe you've been out in the shadows too long. Maybe you've been living in fear too long. Maybe you don't even know Jesus at all. And Joseph couldn't hide anymore. He wasn't able to honor Jesus for such a long time. But after he saw the cross, he knew that he couldn't hide anymore. And maybe this is you. Maybe you need a clearer glimpse of the cross. That you're not honoring Jesus with your life, even though you know he died on the cross for you. And he resurrected from the dead. And Jesus raised from the dead because God accepted the sacrifice that, for the sin offering that Jesus offered. And you know your sins need to be paid for. You know you've broken some law or you've done something to break a commandment. I mean, it's that simple. Have you lied? And if you said no, then there's your first lie. Right? You lied. And so, no one else can pay that penalty. It is either you yourself and you die... Or it's Jesus, and he paid the penalty for you, and he has the power to resurrect. And only you can say whether your faith is legitimate or not, because you can fool all of us. We, we can be fooled. But you, only you in your heart, you know, between you and Jesus know. So make your choice tonight, because you're not here by accident. You know, we, it took us three years to get to this, and you're here tonight, right? Like, so how do you receive Jesus into your life? It's in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience with us and your mercies. And Lord, I ask that you would work in the hearts of anyone who is not walking with you right now. And maybe they do know you, but they've stepped away. Or And those who just don't have a relationship with you at all. You said that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that we will be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that that has happened in someone's heart that doesn't know you or that has been not walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen.